Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, we're blessed to have as our guest Congressman Jim Banks from the 3rd District in Northeast Indiana. He's a true friend of the pro-life movement and the author of a recent common sense bill in the House to increase cost transparency in hospitals and bring down costs. And first, before we get to our interview, we would like to kind of set the stage for the interview by talking about some recent events related to healthcare policy nationwide. The, the most interesting one and exciting one to me was something that transpired recently at the annual American Medical Association National Convention. The AMA has long been opposed to physician-assisted suicide. However, over the last two years, it's recently been lobbied by many of its members practicing assisted suicide in states where it's legal. They said, how can we justify this with the American Medical Association saying assisted suicide is bad? The issue was referred to a committee for about two years, and every six months it would come up with a report and it would come to a vote in front of the whole group of delegates. And it's always been very close, but then recently the AMA finally had enough votes to convincingly maintain its opposition to physician-assisted suicide. And it's interesting, you know, the votes, the initial vote is whether or not to accept the recommendation of the committee. And there are 500 members of this assembly, and it was about 20 votes short of accepting it. But then this year when it was accepted, it was then approved by a 71 to 29% margin. So the reason that it wasn't accepted this year, I'm told by some people who were there, is that this time they included this little clause that said, if you practice in a state where assisted suicide, physician assisted suicide is legal, we as the AMA will not censure you which is kind of talking out of both sides of its mouth. Yeah, it's saying that we're against this, but we won't get you in trouble if it's legal in your state. Yes, I mean, you can't have your cake and eat it too in this sense. So uh, this coalition, this fragile decision is going to be up in, in future years, although I was told by somebody there that in front of the committee that heard the testimony, they feel like they've had enough of this issue and do, do not want to deal with it for a long, long time. Yeah, it's, it's something that I think on a national level won't be going away, but I was very encouraged by a few of the things that I found in their report, one of which was they specifically reaffirmed the use of the term physician-assisted suicide. Instead of medical aid in dying or some other euphemism that makes it sound all nice and fluffy. Yeah, everybody can get behind death with dignity. That sounds like a wonderful thing. What they mean to say is assisted suicide, and this committee said when referring to it in policy, you have to call it what it really is. And so that, I thought, was a major victory for ethical physicians everywhere. And I think it's good for our listeners to know that when you're talking to friends, call it what it is. Don't call some softened term that really... Uh, waters down the reality of what's going on. In fact, it's very sad now. I think I just read that Maine became the eighth state or, or governmental unit coding D.C. that will allow physician-assisted suicide. It's definitely something. There's, there's a large coalition of people who want assisted suicide. There's a lot of money behind it led by Compassion and Choices. And this is a one-issue organization that wants to bring assisted suicide to every state in the country. A lot of physicians and patients rightfully oppose this, and so it's our job to speak up where we're able. So this is one time with when holding still, not changing, was actually a big win. Because even though the AMA represents only about 15 to 20% of physicians nationwide, it is still the largest physician organization in the country that many governmental bodies look to for advice and direction. So it's, it's always nice to get some good news, and I, I wanted to start with that. I've got another piece of good news and a piece of concerning news. So the, the other good news was recent restrictions that HHS put on fetal tissue research. That's the Department of Health and Human Services in Washington, D.C. Yeah, at the direction of President Trump, HHS has decided that it will no longer be able to support any research that's being done on fetal tissues. And so this is another big win for the pro-life movement in general. 
really acknowledging the dignity of these poor babies and, that were aborted. And isn't it specifically embryonic stem cells, or is it also fetal tissue? I believe it's both. Okay. I believe it includes both. And so it's, you know, there's a lot to be said uh, for for politics in general, and, and no one's perfect. But I think when you look at the actions of President Trump and this administration, I'm very impressed at the pro-life advances that have been made. And this is a, a recent example. So I really would like to thank the administration for the work they've done on the pro-life movement. And the embryonic stem cells have not been shown in any way, shape, or form to be equal or superior to adult stem cells. And an adult stem cell is anything that comes from, you know, a baby on up. It's something you know, that isn't taken from the embryo, it's taken from a, a fully developed human being. So it's not only good ethics, it's also good medicine. Yeah, you know, that's one of the things I was reflecting on recently was the whole meeting of faith and medicine. There's two ways to look at things. And, you know, from a philosophical point of view, we really know what's right and wrong. And a lot of secular physicians look at it from a scientific point of view. This is an example of where it matches up. And really, it matches up everywhere. It's just which lens you're looking through. And so we have a, an advantage here to have the philosophy to help guide us when we don't have the science. Now the science on embryonic stem cell research is out. It's no good. But the adult stuff really has led to a lot of unique advances in medicine. So the only reason that uh, embryonic stem cells have been pushed is really for somebody trying to push the ethical envelope. It's so funny, ideology trumping science by scientists. I, I honestly don't get it. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's probably a pretty convoluted system with a lot of money involved. But when in doubt, always stand in defense of life. And so I was so happy to see HHS do that. So what else do you have over on the docket, Andrew? You know, the, the last thing that I wanted to draw our listeners' attention to was a bit of concerning news regarding CRISPR and CRISPR babies. This is a genetic manipulation of either a sperm and an egg or even a young embryo after the baby was conceived in a test tube. And basically, CRISPR allows you to change specific genetics in that baby. I.e. designer babies. Designer babies, yep. They have to be six foot tall with blue eyes and very good at football. So these are things that, in reality, it sounds like science fiction, but these are things that really can come to pass based on the science that we have now. This has been banned in America, and it's been banned legislatively as a line item basically attached to different bills every Congress. Congress currently, especially the House of Representatives under um, uh, Nancy Pelosi, has made it one of their goals to remove this ban going forward. It was removed from a piece of legislation. Uh, it was added back into a different one by some pro-life um, congressmen, and then that was removed from there. So this is an issue that's currently being debated, but it's really a scary thought to me that First of all, someone would, would want to remove this restriction. And then second of all, that it really has a good chance of passing out of the House. And CRISPR is a technology that of itself is neither moral nor immoral. There are actually moral uh, uses of it. So after birth, if there is a problem with one of your genes that makes an important protein in your body, and CRISPR can be used to put a correct version of the gene into your body, that is a good use of the technology. Oh, 100%. And that, that really draws the distinction. Are we curing a disease or are we trying to enhance something that is natural and good? Yes, indeed. And uh, before we go on to our interview, I'd just like to point out that as of 2017, Americans spent more than $1 trillion, that's trillion with a T as in drink with jam and bread, that's a lot of money that's expected to even double by 2026 to $2 trillion a year. And when we have Congressman Banks on, we're going to talk about how can we, in a common sense way that maybe both Republicans and Democrats can agree on, how can we get that cost down? And he's got some good ideas that is uh, receiving uh, support both in the House and from uh, some senators. Some of it is even across the aisle as well, because these are really common sense things that people of both parties can get behind. And so from what we've heard from our contacts in the House and Senate is that uh, there is agreement um, fairly widespread in both parties on getting costs down. So if they can get costs down and not have to deal with ethical issues right now, there seems to be movement there. Although cost itself and overcharging and transparency, we believe, are also 
ethical issues. That's right. It, it is all related. And so we're excited to move on to this interview. However, before we do, Tom, don't you have a trivia question for us? As a matter of fact, I do. And this one will deal with health care costs. In 2007 or 17, just two years ago, total health care costs in the United States were $3.5 trillion, 18% of the gross domestic product. In 1960, or 57 years ago, total health care costs were $27.2 billion, as in a bee that makes honey, only 5% of the gross domestic product. In terms of how much it cost a person per year, in 2017 it cost each person almost $11,000 a year for health care. In 1960, it cost each person about $146 per person. The key numbers here are that recently it's costing 6% of annual income. In 1960, it cost 4% of annual income. My question, therefore, is this. From 1960 to 2017, when you have 57 years of change, how many times from one year to the next year did the average cost per American for health care drop? from one year to the next. So the answer would be between zero and 57 times. How many times from year to year? Say 67 to 68, 87 to 88, 90 to 91. How many times did that drop? You're gonna have to hang around till after the interview to find out here on Dr. Doctor, coming to you recorded live from the stations of Redeemer Radio. And we're back with our guest of the day who comes to us today from inside the Beltway in Washington, D.C., Congressman Jim Banks of Indiana's 3rd District. He's now serving his second term in Congress. He was uh, took the oath in Congress January 3rd, 2017. He's a native of Columbia City, Indiana. He's a graduate of Indiana University and has an MBA from Grace College. He's worked in commercial construction and real estate for more than a decade and served in the Indiana State Senate for uh, six years. He's a member of the Navy Reserve and served two deployments in Afghanistan in 2014 and 2015. He's married, has three daughters, and has been a staunch friend of the pro-life movement. In fact, the Family Research Council has named Representative Banks as a true blue member, which means that since he has been in Congress, he has a 100% pro-life and pro-family voting record. Congressman Jim Banks from Indiana, thank you for being with us on Dr. Doctor. And I want to say I heard your name in a place I did not expect to hear it. In late January, I was attending a retreat for the national board members of the Catholic Medical Association in Nashville. And one of my colleagues, an orthopedic surgeon in California, leans over to me and shows me his cell phone and says, Tom, look at this great bill this congressman just introduced. And he showed me HR 506 and said that all the orthopedic societies, state and national, were supporting it. Then I looked at the author and said, hey, that's my congressman. So that was Congressman Banks. And at that moment, I knew we had to get you the Hospital Competition Act of 2019 and release it in January. Well, let me say uh, uh, to begin with, it, it's a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. And uh, congratulations to the, the growth and reach of, uh, of the Dr. Doctor program. So it's an honor for me to be a part of it. When I was elected to Congress in 2000, and 16, the very first issue that I was faced with was legislation to repeal and replace Obamacare. You, you might remember that. It oh, was yes. The, the dominant issue, President Trump had just been elected. Uh, Speaker Paul Ryan was leading the House of Representatives, and it was the issue, the only issue that was being focused on by, by members of Congress at the time. And, and for about the first five or six months, uh, we had a bill called the American Health Care Act yes, that would have repealed much of Obamacare and replaced it with a number of Republican initiatives uh, like health savings accounts, block grant programs of Medicaid back to the state. It would have scaled back the Obamacare Medicaid extension. We, we, uh, after a while, we passed it out of the House, and you might remember then when the Senate took it up, they... Uh, went through a process that they called a Senate vote-a-rama. Yes. Which means they, uh, they got to a point where they threw everything out there and voted um, up or down on the 
on the bill, and that's when the infamous uh, Senator John McCain thumbs down moment happened that killed yes um, all of those uh, efforts. So when, when Senator McCain um, uh, voted against the full repeal of Obamacare, that at that point the epiphany for me was that we Republicans need to need to take a different path. We need to do something different to address rising health care costs in our country. That might not mean a full repeal of Obamacare, even though I support that, supported it then and, and support it now. So that, that motivated me to take a different approach. I, my constituents expect me to be a problem solver, p- part of a, a new generation of members of Congress who are trying to address the big issues of the day. And, and I think we all agree that the rising cost of health care in this country is, is uh, one of those major issues. And when it comes to health care costs, we find that the rising uh, cost of, uh, of high cost specifically uh, is an area that, that I believe that there is bipartisan support to do something about it. That, that's ultimately what motivated me to introduce the Hospital Competition Act. Man, that's, that's music to my ears because I know kind of outside of D.C., that's one of the biggest things that I hear about. There's so much stuff that everyone agrees on. It can't be partisan, you know, so to speak. And so looking at this bill in particular, it really seems promising. Can you describe the the nitty-gritty details of the bill a little bit for our listeners? Well, there are a few aspects of the bill. You know, as, I, as, as I've already said, one-third of all health care spending uh, in the country, $1.1 trillion, is directly related to hospital costs. So what, what can we do about it? Um, you know, I, I believe that... Um, uh, uh, the the lack of competition in the ho- in the hospital market is what's driving costs. I mean, as a conservative, we we believe in the the, the fundamentals of competition. That competition drives down costs. It creates a more competitive environment. And because of because of the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010 2011, there there were incentives built into Obamacare that incentivized hospital consolidation. And what, when the movement toward consolidation occurred. Um, all over the country, that's what that's what's raised prices. So, 44% of hospital regions throughout the country are what we would call highly concentrated. So, uh, the more competition that occurs, the higher the prices uh, grow. Uh, what what I think we need to do about it is empower the Justice Department to uh, investigate uh, hospital mergers and uh, take take an approach that to take away the incentives for a hospital, big hospital uh, markets to merge together and therefore um, take the competitive nature out of the market. So one of the incentives that you put in this bill, which I just love, is that if in one of these highly concentrated areas there is a merger, that that hospital has to accept Medicare rates from commercial payers. Now that probably doesn't mean anything to the average listener, but the average listener should realize that commercial payers typically pay 50 to 100% more for the same thing, the same procedure, the same service as Medicare does. So this would radically reduce the income for these hospitals, wouldn't it, Congressman? Yeah, it, it would. And as you can imagine, this is the, this is the most controversial <laughs> component of the bill. Uh, you know, we've heard a lot from the hospital association and other, other um special interest groups that have a vested interest in the status quo. Don't, don't forget, by the way, that the hospital association supported the Affordable Care Act. They, they had as much to gain from Obamacare as any other aspect of, of health care. So uh, there, there was a study that came out a couple of weeks ago um, that was conducted by something called the RAND oh, yes. uh, Corporation. And there, there was a lot of publicity around this, this study. In fact, some of the one particular uh, hospital uh, network in, in my area was uh, highly profiled in the story, ironically, because of this trend. Uh, since 2009, uh, we've seen uh, hospital mergers more than double, going from 55 to 115 uh, a year at, at this point. As you mentioned, insurance premiums are, according to the RAND study, 52% higher in highly concentrated hospital regions than what they are in areas with more competition. So if we take away the incentives for for consolidation and empower the Justice Department to do more to crack down on hospital monopolies, I, I think we can go a long way to driving down the cost of health care, and everyone will be better off for it. 
Man, I, th- I think that sounds wonderful. I was really excited to hear that part. And the other part that really stuck out to me was the, the hospitals would be required to publish the costs <laughs> of their 100 most common services. That's so exciting to me because I can't even tell you how many times people ask me, you know, it's a common sense question, a question I'd, I'd ask anybody, you know, what will this cost before I sign up for it? And the, the tricky part is for so many things in healthcare, we just don't know. And it's really unfair, I think, that you go to one hospital, it's going to cost you potentially two or three times as much as if you were in another part of the state or country. And so I think the transparency is going to be a huge aspect of this. Well, no, no doubt about it. Transparency uh, plus competition go a long way to drive down health care costs. What I hear from my constituents in Northeast Indiana is, you know, we, we, don't, we don't care necessarily – about the, the, the political back and forth between Republicans and Democrats. We, we just want you to do something about uh, <laughs> about the rising cost that's, that's uh, having such a drastic and negative impact on so many families in our region. And th- this is one way where I really believe that we can do something about rising health care costs in a, in a common-sense fashion. Um, we, we've only recently introduced the bill. It hasn't, it hasn't moved through the process yet. There's a lot of, there's, there, there are a lot of other issues, as you can imagine, going on in Congress and that's the frustrating part of my job. There's there's so much attention into the the, the Mueller report and <sighs> issues surrounding President Trump, whether or not the Democrats move toward impeachment, and so little time uh, devoted to substantive issues like these. But there there is there are a couple of senators on the Senate side who are introducing um, major uh, health care um, initiatives, and, and we're we're trying to work with them and maybe including some of these provisions. If not all, then certain parts of the Hospital Competition Act that might be included in some larger comprehensive uh, health care reform packages that might come out of the Senate. One other aspect of your bill that I absolutely love is that you want to reduce costs by equalizing reimbursement rates for the same procedure done in a hospital as done in the physician practice. I've always thought it's been grossly unfair that if I did the same thing in a hospital, I would get paid maybe twice or three times as much as if I do it in my office. And I never understood why that was. And that's how hospitals have been able to buy up so many physician practices and afford to pay them more. How did you, how did you get come on to this reality so that you can start to correct it? Well, we uh, simply put, we, we, we listen to um, patients, we listen to doctors, we listen to those who are most affected by these bad practices. And that, that's what led us to this bill. I mean, as you can imagine, I'm I'm not a doctor. I don't come from a healthcare background. I I'm, I represent a district in Northeast Indiana that has been affected by rising healthcare costs, just like every other district in the country. I have constituents that expect me to do something about it, and uh, we spent the better part of the last year working with um, experts, those those in the field, uh, think tank um, type uh, experts as well to to craft. The language is in this bill, and that this is the this is what we've come up with in the Hospital Competition Act. Are you hearing any agreement from those on the other side of the aisle with any of your ideas in this bill? Certainly, a lot of agreement and and private conversations that I have with Democrat members on the floor about the legislation. There, there's been a whole lot of attention, especially when the Rand study came out. That that motivated um, a, a lot more attention towards specifically toward hospital costs. The, the president has been vocal about yes. uh, these issues as well, especially the transparency piece. And you know, I, b- I believe that the more he becomes aware of of um, you know, these the simple reforms that we can advocate for to drive down hospital costs, the more um, energy and weight that he's willing to put behind the, behind this issue as well. But unfortunately, as I said before, I mean, the, you have a House of Representatives led by one party that's almost singularly focused on these other side issues that have nothing to do with solving problems, nothing to do with what the voters elected all 435 of us to do to go to Washington and be be problem solvers, and whether it's health care or immigration or supporting veterans or rebuilding our military, they're not there aren't there aren't enough members of Congress who are focused on that. They're focused on um, on as we move into the 2020 election, what can we do to embarrass the president? Are we going to move into impeachment proceedings, the Mueller report? Uh, there's way too much attention paid toward that and not enough attention paid toward common sense ways that we can drive down health care costs for uh, families all throughout the United States of America. 
I, I was wondering, one of the things that I noticed in the bill as well was a ban on construction of physician-owned hospitals. We In, in our recording area, we have a physician-owned hospital, and uh, I wish I owned it. Uh, I sure don't. But um, <laughs> I, wa- I wondered part of the, what was the thought process there. Is that something that you guys have identified also helps drive up costs? Well, once again, the, the Hospital Association is a, is a powerful lobby in Washington, D.C. You and your listeners aren't going to be surprised by that. <laughs> no. And when, um, when the Affordable Care Act was, was passed, the, the ban on physician-owned um, hospitals was also passed around that time as well because of the weight of, of, um, of the Hospital Association. And you know, the, 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 these big hospital networks um, benefit so greatly from uh, these monopolies that they they want to do everything they can to drive out competition in the marketplace. The more that I've learned about physician hospitals, the more I've, I've come to appreciate how effective they are, the, the the vested interest that physicians have in the operation and and uh, the the business part of a hospital often leads to a better business model. In fact, some of the highest rated hospitals in the country are physician owned hospitals. Certainly in my in the state of Indiana, that's the case. So in a manner of creating more competition in the marketplace, this is one simple way to, 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 to make that happen. And there, there is bipartisan support. There are, there are bills in Congress that are specifically focused on eliminating the ban on physician-owned hospitals that Democrats support. So that oh, there good. is good news there that maybe there's an opportunity here in the near future to drive uh, more competition by lifting this ban. What, what do you think the chances are before the 2020 election for movement on health care issues? Do you think there's there's much opportunity in the current House a, as it is, or do you think many of these other kind of sideshow issues are going to dominate most of the time? Well, you know, look, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm generally an optimist, and I, what I hear from my constituents loud and clear, once again, is do something about it. Quit, quit playing games. Don't make this about Republicans versus Democrats. Um, address this uh, major issue of uh, of healthcare and 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 find ways to do it. I be, and because of that, because of the motivation, the the mood of the the electorate that's demanding that something be done about it, uh, I'm I'm still optimistic that that we can get something passed in this Congress. But that that being said, I mean my, the the political lesson that I learn every day when I uh, put on my my suit and tie and drive to Capitol Hill and go to work is the closer we get to November 2020, the more all this becomes about whether or not President Donald Trump is elected or reelected or defeated and who will control the majority in the House and the Senate. And what, what can Democrats do to block President Trump from having any wins that he might, he might be able to trumpet or, or uh, talk about in the, in the next election cycle versus uh, Republicans trying to do the same to Democrats and prevent the Democrat House from getting any progress done as well. So uh, there certainly is a political element here that's disappointing to me, and I'm sure to most of your listeners, too. So we're going to take a break now. We're going to come back with more. We'll be right back with more on Dr. Doctor. Well, let's switch to ideas now from (laughs) those realities that we don't enjoy. But uh, I guess part of one reality right now is that the Democrats have a talking point with health care. Three words, Medicare for all. And those of us in the Catholic Medical Association, for a number of reasons, think that's a bad idea, bad for human dignity, bad for health care, bad for costs. The problem is we don't see that Republicans have any united talking points on health care, and we think that they could suffer on health care unless they come up with something. So my question is, are the Republicans working to have some united front for something that appeals to voters and will actually help people's health care problems? Well, we're, we're trying. Uh, you know, the, the, the sad reality is that, you know, it's, it's Medicare for all on, on one side, and then my, my initiative uh, on the other side might be the most aggressive approach that Republicans have. Uh, that, that being said, it's not nearly as high profile as uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and um, others' uh, ability to use the use the platforms that they have to go out and talk about th- their proposal for maybe Medicare you should start all. cooking so, on Facebook. What do you think? <laughs> uh, I need to certainly I need to find ways to be more uh, creative to to grow my reach. But I'm not willing to not willing to go as far as AOC or some of the other. No, ones, but, thank you. <laughs> uh, but this issue is so important that you know I think 
I haven't said it already, but one thing, one bipartisan notion that I found in Congress today is that Republicans and Democrats agree that that Obamacare has failed. It's failing, and we need to do something to replace Even it. Even Democrats agree. They, they they do agree, and that uh, almost universally, you have a bipartisan um, attitude toward Obamacare that that it's failed, and we need to replace it. The Democrats with Medicare for all, Republicans with advocating for more of a uh, a competitive uh, market based approach. The American Healthcare Act, which you know met met its defeat once again in the in the Senate when Senator McCain voted against it, um, actually included a number of very good uh, proposals that. Uh, that provide a platform for where we can start expanding or doubling the um, uh, health savings accounts. Uh, again, again, block granting uh, Medicaid yes. dollars to the states so they can stretch it further. There, there was a lot of there were a lot of good aspects of that bill that provide us a good place to start. The Hospital Competition Act that I've introduced is a new and, and different, unique approach. A, a colleague of mine, Bruce uh, Westerman from Arkansas, has a a bill that includes some of my. Uh, provisions on the on hospital competition, but also goes a lot further and includes some of the some of those other issues that we talked about a little bit ago that were in the the bill that uh, failed a couple of years ago. So Republicans have to your to answer your question in, a, in too long of a way. <laughs> Republicans have failed to to yes. counter Medicare for all with our own proposal o- outside of mine and maybe a couple of others. There's not there is not a unified approach, and I, I'm I'm of the belief that that has to. Uh, start or originate from the president. I mean, he he is the leader of the Republican Party, and re- Republican leadership in the Congress needs to work with the president to release a platform of uh, of what we can do to reform health care and, and solve these problems. But there are a lot of other issues on the president's uh, plate as well. Well, one of the things that we were talking about a little bit before we went on air was the Hyde Amendment. I, I know that you have always been a passionate supporter for the Right to Life movement, and I know one of the biggest concerns for, for many Christians is the idea of Medicare for All and what that would do to the Right to Life movement, and especially as it relates to taxpayer funding of abortions. In, in the House right now, there are a lot of people who are trying to get rid of the Hyde Amendment. Can you discuss that a little bit for our listeners and what, what hope we have to keep that around? Uh, re- really, this is astonishing uh, to, to take a moment and realize how far we've come. For, for 40 years, 40 years, the Hyde Amendment has been the law of the land and, and supported broadly by, by Republicans and Democrats. In fact, I, I was astonished to hear... Joe Biden, who supported the the Hyde Amendment, he's not Joe, uh, Vice President Joe Biden. Senator Joe Biden was never a staunch uh, advocate for the right to life, uh, but even even aside from that, he supported the Hyde Amendment because uh, even staunch advocates of abortion uh, believe that our tax dollars shouldn't go toward funding abortion. So, uh, but the Democrat Party today is a lot different than my. I often say my, uh, this isn't my grandpa's Democrat Party. Uh, he wouldn't recognize it, and uh, the the leftward lurch of the Democrat Party, uh, including the by the way the, the the party platform of the Democrat Party opposes the Hyde Amendment, and now on the House floor, it seems like every single day there are efforts to repeal the Hyde Amendment, and that, that's what that's what we find as we speak, um, as this program is airing on the on the House floor. Democrats are are planting provisions and spending bills that would roll back pro-life protections that have passed over the past couple of years, the Conscience uh, Protection Act, some of President uh, Trump's uh, administrative rules for Title X uh, reforms to Title X funding, the funds uh, Planned Parenthood. A lot of these provisions are being rolled back in spending deals on the House floor by Democrats, and their attack on the Hyde Amendment is is almost a, a daily battle so, that they're waging. So, Congressman Banks, does the Hyde Amendment is it in force, you know, until it's voted down, or does it have to be voted up every new Congress every two years? We continue it in um, the spending packages. It was a fight even when Republicans were in the House uh, in, the, in the House majority my, in my first two year term to include. Those protections and the spending deals. So, so to your, to your question, uh, the Democrats are try, are doing everything they can to strip those protections, uh, but it does have to be passed every time a spending deal passes to include 
riders that would uh, prevent taxpayer dollars to go toward funding abortion. Uh, uh, one of the more radical uh, left-wing progressive Democrats, a new member from Massachusetts who introduced an amendment that was fortunately ruled out of order, but it would have stripped um, Hyde protections from the current minibus spending deal on the House floor this week. Um, that, that being said, the fight's not over, even though it's not included in this one small package. There are many more packages to come, and uh, we, we, we must do everything that we can to prevent them from uh, repealing it. President Trump, though, has issued a veto threat. We can all be very proud of that, saying that any spending bill that comes to his desk that would uh, infringe upon Hyde protections, he will veto it. And this is a president who's kept his word when it comes to every other uh, pro-life issue in his first two and a half years in office. And I'm, I'm going to take him at, at, at his word that he will that he will do that if anything comes to his desk that would repeal any Hyde protections at all. You are a veteran. I'm also a veteran. I'm a veteran of the Army. So I appreciate very much our active duty and our veterans' health care system. And I think to switch gears a little bit, you've been involved with certain initiatives within the, the veterans' health care system that most listeners probably don't know about. And I'm curious from your perspective, first of all, before I ask you about a specific bill you've uh, co-authored, is what do you wish Americans generally knew about the VA medical care system that they don't know? Well, that's a great question. First of all, thank you for your service. Um, when I ran for Congress, I didn't know as much about the VA system, healthcare system, as what I know today. I've served on the Veterans Committee both in my first term and, and now in my second term. I certainly didn't know anything about electronic health records or <laughs> IT modernization or how all that fit you in. You were probably uh, happier before you heard about them. For, yes. <laughs> for veterans. But it's interesting, from, from the last subject to this subject, um, what, what I often tell people is that if you want to envision what Medicare for All would do to healthcare in the United States of America, um, think about it this way. It would be forcing all Americans into a system that looks a lot like the VA. And that, since I've been in Congress, we've been trying to do the opposite. We've been trying to provide, we've, and we've passed um, significant pieces of legislation that expand the choice program something called the Mission Act that we passed last year that reauthorized uh, choice and prob uh, just about doubling access to um, health care for veterans outside of the VA. Now, yes. I'm, I'm one who believes that the VA serves a purpose. Um, there, there's nobody that I know of on Capitol Hill who's trying to privatize the VA, uh, but we do believe that veterans deserve the best options. So that option might be, the best option might be the VA, or the best option might be a, a private sector, a community health care provider um, outside of the VA. So that, that's, where we're, that's where we're heading. And the reason we're heading there is because in about 20, 20 to 25 years, uh, we estimate that the, the, the veteran population enrolled in the VA will be half of what it is today. Wow. So we can't continue to invest in bricks and mortar and expanding a veteran, uh, a VA health um, system uh, in, to the tune that we have been in recent years. I mean, the VA budget has almost doubled in the past in the past decade alone. We can't we can't continue down that trajectory. We need to we need to find ways to modernize the VA. One one way to do that, and and once again, when I got elected to Congress, I never I didn't know anything about electronic health records. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an IT expert. Uh, but when I got elected to Congress, I appreciated that President Trump was willing to make a major investment in modernizing uh, the, the EHRs uh, for the VA and trying to create an interoperable uh, EHR between the DOD and the VA and something that would be interoperable with, with uh, community providers as well. Uh, right now, we use, uh, the VA uses a system um, that dates back to the early 1980s for, for EHRs. <laughs> so the, the Cerner contract that we're investing, $16.1 billion, is being that's being uh, rolled out over the next 10 years is a major investment, but a valuable one and an important one for our veterans that will work with a similar contract that the DOD has so that your electronic health record that's developed as a, as a service member will then transfer to the VA. And then as we expand choice, um, the, the Mission Act, which went into effect last week, as that goes into effect, 
then the big picture is that EHR is going to follow you wherever you go. And that, our, our veterans deserve that. I think you would agree that our yes. veterans deserve that. And the more that we can modernize these IT systems, um, the, the more uh, the better care our veterans will receive and, and um, the more seamless that process will work. And I just want to, you know, for our listeners say, I have seen personally VA patients come to me because there's no one at the VA in our area who does what I do. So I'm regularly operating on VA patients. And they're generally happy with their VA care, but they're also happy that the VA will send them out when someone in the community can do something better than their local VA can. So uh, I'm seeing from the other side exactly what you're describing. You recently, to switch gears, authored an opinion piece with uh, David Prentice of the Charlotte Lozier Institute um, about following states' lead and blocking fetal tissue research. And, and as it happens to be, the president recently did something with this. Would you, you tell us about what prompted you to write this and what you think about the president's actions? Yeah, um, shortly after I was elected, I learned more about the, the major investment that was going to the National Institute of Health, a major research entity, uh, which we send many, many millions of dollars to. Uh, I, I came to uh, learn more about how some of those dollars were being funded toward fetal tissue research. And the head of NIH of today is a carryover from the Obama administration. And somewhat controversial, co- controversially, he he supports fetal tissue research. So I don't know that the president knew that when he reappointed him. Um, it was disappointing to me, and I, I called on uh, the president to replace him with, with someone who was opposed to fetal tissue research. Um, unfortunately, that, that didn't happen. So this, this uh, individual continues to lead NIH today. So when the president reappointed him, I thought that the only option that I have moving forward is to introduce legislation that would prevent um, the NIH to use our tax dollars to fund that type of uh, reprehensible research. Um, but so far, that legislation hasn't passed, although we have many dozens of um, uh, co-authors. Uh, and I, by the way, that, that is a bipartisan piece of legislation. Dan Lipinski, a Democrat from yes. Illinois, has been my, my co-sponsor uh, of that legislation. I, I appreciate him uh, going against much of the will of his party, which who who are who are trying to defeat him because yes, of his pro-life stance, yes. uh, but it is bipartisan. There are there are a very there there are pro-life Democrats, uh, very few, but there are pro-life Democrats who support a piece of the legislation like this. So the, the president, the president though, has recently uh, taken more of an interest in this in this cause, and uh, through uh, through executive orders has. Um, has clamped down on on fetal tissue research, and we we appreciate that this this president, who I who I believe, and it took me some convincing, uh, but but I believe this president is the most pro life president we've ever had, and actions yes speak louder than words. Yes, and he's, he's remained committed to what he told us he would do on the campaign trail, and I I appreciate that very much about President Trump. Man, well we we really appreciate all of your insights into the the life inside the beltway. There's there's so many things that we might read about in the news and get frustrated with, especially related to healthcare policy, but it's nice to have someone out there who's who's hopefully able to bring some of this down and the legislation that you're introducing is very promising. So we really appreciate you coming on to share that with our listeners. Thank you, Congressman Banks. Thank you for the opportunity. You're welcome. And uh We'll be back with more Dr. Doctor after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, here with the answer to our trivia question. Yes, and the question was, between the years 1960 and 2017, out of 57 years, how many times did the average cost per American per year for health care drop? Man, that's a good question. So 57 years, that includes the starting of Medicare. So at least that year, right, Tom? You would think so, wouldn't you? But the answer is actually very simple. It's a number that was only discovered late on in human history, and that number is zero. At no time did the cost go down from one year to the next. And this is from the government's own data. The year that it increased the least was 2012 to 2013. It only increased 2.9%. Wow. 
And then the most, back when I was my last year of high school dating myself, 1980 to 81, the cost increased 16%. It was a time of big inflation. See, that's, that's just crazy to me. And it's also very telling when, when we're having conversations about health policy and how to keep costs down. It's always wise to look at the history, and the history has shown the stuff that we've done in the past have not really significantly stemmed the tide. No, so socialized medicine, the beginning, of, which Medicare is, Medicare and Medicaid is, uh, part is socialized medicine. It's just not for everybody in the country, did not bring down health care costs. And in fact, uh, health care has always been far outstripping inflation in terms of costs. The only thing close to this right now? Ooh, I don't know. That's a good question. Education costs. Look oh, at colleges. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's true. I've, I've seen the data on that, and that is just staggering as well. And so it's it's something that I find interesting. When you, when it's something that it, it would seem to me we, we get another level of bureaucracy, even with student loans and things of that nature, there's not an incentive to cut costs. There's not. And so that's something that is, is worth considering. Well, we have a few minutes to go to some listener questions. So I'm going to ask Andrew because he knows more about this than I do. Uh, one woman writes in, I've heard anecdotally of couples who are rightfully trying to avoid pregnancy. But when they get older, they keep having marriages, mis- marriages, miscarriages. Let's go back because I totally screwed up the question. I've heard of couples who are not trying to avoid pregnancy, but when they get older, they have more miscarriages when they were younger. So the the question is, is there a time before menopause when it is unhealthy or too dangerous for women to keep trying to achieve pregnancy, even though they technically haven't stopped ovulating? Okay, so so because of the the extra miscarriages or other health factors, is it ever too dangerous? Um, That's a great question. I'd, I'd preface it by saying that Without a doubt, as the woman gets older especially, it, it's surprisingly not as important how old the guy is, but as the woman gets older, the risk for you know fetal anomalies, miscarriages, other health problems for the baby, especially genetic problems, definitely goes up. Um, that being said, when is it too dangerous or when is it too, too dangerous that it would be even unethical to, to try and achieve a pregnancy or go without avoiding, so to speak. I think that's something that really should be made between the parents and their physician. Now, I know a lot of people talk about that on, on the abortion issue. This is not this is not an abortion issue. It's, it's more of a reflection that everybody's health is different. And there is definitely increased risk with age, but people also can accept different levels of risk. And for some people who, you know, the medical term is actually elderly um, elderly pregnant ladies, uh, which means people 35 or older. Wow. And so that's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's something that you, you've got to clarify. But as people get to be 35 or 40, I know a lot of people who choose to continue to try to have babies and even choose to not prevent pregnancy. So the risk goes up, but I wouldn't say that the risk in my eye ever gets to the point that everyone should be encouraged to avoid pregnancy. Yeah, we had four of our babies after my wife was 35. See, and so that would really probably get goosebumps on a lot of OBs saying, gee whiz, this is high risk. But in reality, it's it's very individualized. But women are actually delaying childbirth if you look at the statistics compared to, I mean, I think there are less women in their 20s and more in their 30s than ever having babies. Oh, 100% as as the age, the average age of marriage and the average age of the first baby keeps getting older. This becomes a very salient question. So thank you, listener, for sending that in. And another question says, we are studying sexual ethics and morality, and I was asked about scarring in fallopian tubes. What is the most common reason for this, and can a woman be born with scarred fallopian tubes? Man, that sounds like a a good ethics class in my mind. So good, good job, listener, for getting yourself into that question. That question. I mean, it, it shows a lot of thought. Scarring of the fallopian tubes happens from damage to the fallopian tubes. I would say it would be very unlikely for a woman to be born with scarred fallopian tubes. And those are the tubes between? Between the, the basically where the eggs come, the, the ovary. ovary, and it's the tube that the eggs float down into the uterus. Right, or the womb. 
or the womb, correct. And so most of the time, scarring comes from either a previous infection, um, also known as pelvic inflammatory disease, or a previous surgery or trauma of some kind, or very commonly endometriosis. And so there are a lot of things that can make it happen, but it'd be uncommon for someone to be born with that. And the final question, are there licit treatments for low sperm count in men? Man, that's a good that's a good question as well. And there definitely are a list of licit treatments. A lot of them actually were developed out of the Pope Paul VI Center that studies NAPRO technology out of Omaha, Nebraska. Some of them are things that are over-the-counter supplements. Uh, lisinopril is a blood pressure medicine that we use is sometimes. Clomid is something that can increase the production of testosterone. And even things like HCG, which is the pregnancy hormone, can influence the, the sperm production. So Would not have dreamed that. Seek out a NAPRO technology doctor, and they will most certainly help you. NAPRO is an N-A-P-R-O. And thank you for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio and broadcast on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to catch any past episodes by listening on iTunes or Google Play Podcasts. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing marijuana and CBD oil, and even medical marijuana, with addiction expert Dr. Jeff Berger. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your question to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at redeemerradio.com doctor where you can also find all our past episodes. Keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app or by following us on Facebook at Dr. Doctor Show.